Welcome to Bible Q&A, a monthly discussion with Luther Seminary faculty about everything you wanted to know about the Bible but were afraid to ask. I'm Katherine Schifferdecker. And I'm Eric Barreto. Today we're talking with Sarah Henrik, professor of New Testament at Luther Seminary, uh, and she is addressing the question, what really happened at Easter? So thanks for joining us, Sarah. This is a really great piece and I think uh, really important for, for the Christian faith. Um, one way we might ask the question is to ask, why is Easter the most important day on the church calendar? Well, I'm glad to be here, Eric and Catherine, first of all. And it's the most important day on the Christian calendar because we celebrate Jesus alive again. If it weren't for Easter, however we understand exactly what happened, we would have the dead body of a crucified Lord now moldered in the grave and turned to dust, And we wouldn't know what to do with that. There would be no connection to our lives, and we wouldn't have a sense that God in some way, as Paul says, highly exalted him. So Jesus' return to life means everything to us. I think one thing that I'm always struck about Easter and the resurrection is that the cross doesn't get the last word. And one way I help my students think about this is imagine if Jesus had come, say, in the 1980s, and just a generation later— his followers are wearing uh, an electric chair on their, around their necks or, um, or a syringe full, mm-hmm. of, full of, of poison. Um, it's that radical of a moment, and that doesn't get the last word. It's this a moment of, of, of life that is the last word in Jesus' life. And I think that makes a big difference for how we uh, think about Jesus in, in our faith. Not only about Jesus at that moment, but also about ourselves, because that return to life is a gift of God. God raises Jesus from the dead. And as those early believers understood it, certainly Paul, and I'm convinced the others as well, that means that we have something to look forward to, that in fact, it's not just because Jesus was a good guy mm-hmm. that he's yeah. raised from the dead, yeah. but because God, it, it's that first fruits, pioneer of the faith imagery, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that Jesus is the first and it's going to be big. The age has turned. It's that apocalyptic imagery. We aren't stuck back in the age where death ruled anymore. We're in an age where God's will for life now can be expressed and looked forward to for all of us. So Jesus as pioneer is really, or first fruits, I really like that, is really, really important here. Otherwise, it's just the resurrection of somebody who is particularly godly. So, yeah, I, I uh, the, amen to that. I, I often think of Paul's uh, uh, passage in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, if, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, yeah. we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first right. fruits of those who have died. Exactly. It's just, you know, if it didn't happen, what are we doing? What is this all about? Right. Yeah. If it didn't happen, we're stuck doing things that some some people who still understand themselves to be Christian do. And so we want to give some credence to their understanding that Jesus came and reveals God to us in particularly important and poignant ways, including uh, obedience to a godlike way of being with people. That is giving them freedom to say yes or no, mm-hmm. to love or not, mm-hmm. and that Jesus' death is yet a way of continuing to bear that godly ethos, that godly way of being into the world, without even a resurrection. But it seems to me that without the resurrection, 
the godly ethos looks uh, dangerously doormat like. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's really yeah. it's yeah. a difficult thing to honor Jesus as say a great teacher, a wisdom bearer, a sage, someone who really bears a good interpretation of God to us, mm-hmm. and then stop short of a resurrection. Can certainly understand the impulse because yeah. it's a very right. hard thing to understand. Right. It but, is indeed. Yeah. 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 And it seems, too, that there's a sense in which the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus together seem to embody or um, carry God's promises. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that. What, what, what does a resurrection mean for us? It's, a, it's just a great question, and I think, um, I think it all remains to be seen. I mean, what, what we can't say is what Paul expected, that that turn of the age would come and that Jesus would be there in the air and gather up the dead who believed and then the living— uh, it's been too long. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean for us? And to me, at least, one of the really big things it means hinges on that therefore in Philippians. Therefore, God exalted him. So there's something about the way Jesus was among us that is hallowed in the resurrection, that set before us as clearly as this is my beloved son, listen to him. Uh, So beloved that death is not going to be the last word for him, nor will it be for you, but listen to him. And then that becomes listening to his life and death with that hope of a resurrection for us. So for people of faith, um, oh boy, that's a general term. (laughs) There's a way that the resurrection puts Jesus before us not only as a hope of eternal life, but a way of being alive mm-hmm. that is more in tune with the shalom, the uh, covenant relationship that God has offered all along. And for people who weren't Jews, I, I think this is a universal early Christian understanding and not one that we think about very much because it just doesn't seem pertinent to us. But it was a way for Gentiles also to become mm-hmm. part of the mm-hmm. people of mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. I think the Holy Spirit was distributed in ways that quite surprised uh, some of these early evangelists who were mostly Jewish to see that Gentiles are proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. Whoa. So I think that's another thing, that there's a way that we're brought into this Eons old covenant um, without having to be anything other than who we are as Gentiles, we're, the covenant is renewed also for us. So there's a great gift in that that we don't really think much about anymore. It seems to me that the power of the resurrection isn't just uh, something about our future, not just about our eternal destiny, but about how we can live life Absolutely. today. It's a, it's, a, it's a renewing not just of our lives after death, but a renewing of life right now. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And that gift of the Holy Spirit is one of the big things, I think, that happens to people. We see it finally uh, after Easter at Pentecost, but there's no reason to think that was the first or only time. I mean, there are other stories in which eyes are opened that have been closed. And that is partly Jesus, the appearing resurrected one. But there is a power of the Spirit that is made available through baptism I'm going to sound a lot like Paul here. Uh, It's just what's happened to me after all these years. But I think there's something really essential for how we live. It's not only promise, Eric. I couldn't agree with you more, but that spirit that empowers us to live 
this covenant relationship that is calling as well as gift. And boy, I don't think you can escape that. And I think you, I I agree with you too. I think both for this life and the one uh, to come, I want to, and and we've been talking primarily about the gift and the promise for this life and how we live this life. But I I don't want to diminish the promise for the life to come as well. I mean, that's, that is also a promise that has sustained uh, Christians um, through the eons, uh, particularly during times of great persecution. Uh, so the so the promise uh, you said a little earlier, Sarah. You know, uh, Paul was expecting right now or or soon Jesus was yes. was coming back, and it's been too long. Uh, but but that's still part of the promise. As Absolutely, well. yeah. and I I mean I love not only Paul but also later writers in the New Testament who talk about the delay as time to give us. Uh, to give us time for repentance, yeah, which seems yeah. to me we still need pretty much up. So, <laughs> so yeah. for God to suddenly send Jesus back again would really perhaps not be quite the gift that we all hope for. And Paul is so fascinated and clear, and I think this is really important. Catherine, it, it leads me to your interest in ecology as well and uh-huh. creation, that God wants to redeem what God has made. Yes, And yeah. so when Paul gets around in 1 Corinthians 15 to talking about with these people who are struggling with this, what the heck is a resurrection body? He's willing to say, I don't know. Right. Yeah. Any more than you'd yeah. be able to tell me looking at a dried kernel of corn this tall, leafy green plant that's going to spring from mm, it. Mm-hmm, They're mm-hmm. that much alike mm-hmm. and that much not alike. Yeah. So we don't really know because none of us have ever fully had the spiritual body. Yeah. But confident that we will. And spiritual for the ancients does not mean immaterial. So that's something that we need to, or and certainly not unreal. Say, say a little more about that. Um, well, many opinions, of course, in the ancient world about what spiritual meant. But... It was it was a part of uh, one kind of scientific understanding that I think was pretty widespread that spiritual had uh, or invisible still was real, but that the material was spread much thinner, and so that it wouldn't always be apparent to the naked eye. The Epicureans were particularly into this, but uh-huh. popularized Epicureanism out there all over the place. So when you read about demons or unclean spirits or such things, they're not immaterial always. They're powers that really are and are real material, but spread too thin for us to catch a glimpse of with our limited vision. And it's kind of interesting, it seems to me, that the more we know scientifically now, the more we realize our senses are limited in a whole range yeah, of areas yeah. for there are things we simply can't hear, things we can't smell mm-hmm. that can make animals of all sorts, other creatures, slightly crazy with uh, <laughs> their sensitivities. So I'm willing to suspend belief about how much of reality my eyes are able to see. I like that idea of yeah. reality being spread too thin for me to catch a glimpse of. And it's even really if we can't sense yeah. it or see it, it's still real. I like yeah. that. That's great. And people That's do great. sense it, yeah. which I think is another oh, yeah, interesting true. thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. talking about life after death and thinking about the appearances folks have experienced of loved ones gone mm-hmm, or a sense mm-hmm. of their presence in a way that is so real. Yeah. I mean, you can chalk that up to psychological vulnerability, I'm not willing to do that either. Because psychological vulnerability is just cover language for something that we don't fully understand. Yeah, I agree. I want to, Sarah, I really appreciated your essay. I think you made just some excellent points. And and I I want you just to expand on one 
Uh, you use the term biased witness yes, I uh, early on in the essay, <laughs> and then you, you talk about it towards the end of the essay. But could you say, uh, why, why do you call the witnesses of the Gospels and Paul biased? Okay, that's a really fine question. And I have to say it because I also have a historian's heart as well as a uh-huh. Christian one. But here's the deal. We don't have any witnesses to a resurrected Jesus. We don't even have witnesses, as far as I know, to an empty tomb, aside from the witnesses of Christians whom we call evangelists Mm -hmm. and, in Paul's case, apostle. They are so convinced that this has happened, that this is in connection with God's long plan for humanity, that it is God will. They are so convinced by their experiences, I think, again, of the Holy Spirit and a variety of other stories that they've heard from sources, that they want to share it. Well, when people are so convinced of something, it's like How do you convince your parents that this guy who maybe looks a little different from what they had hoped for you in terms of a husband (laughs) really does love you and really has great prospects? They're not exactly going to be able to trust you because they think that your eyes are somewhat blinded by your own love and commitment. Uh And so this is all we've got, people who are eager to share a message to which they're already committed Mm -hmm. in these documents. They are biased. That's not to say they are untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. It's to say that we catch their love and commitment to this worldview, to this sensibility, to this reality that they perceive. And then, and we'll talk about this later, how that plays out in our own time. But we don't have anybody who doesn't connect it to God or who doesn't have any answers saying, wow, this is interesting. We have this occurrence of somebody who was once raised from the dead, but we, you know, or we have this instance of an empty tomb. So there's a commitment called yeah. for, there's a yeah. response. Yeah. It all comes from within the community of believers, yeah. in a word. Yeah. Yeah. And it's for people's, I mean, Luke puts it very clearly, this is to help firm up the mm-hmm. faith that you've already been taught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's not a scientific document or a historical document in that sense. It's a, a deeply, positively, passionately biased set of documents we and, got. And so convinced by it that they're willing to die for it. Yes, absolutely. But these bias sources may actually be the, the best kind of sources for our faith. Yes. Um, that an, an objective, detached view of the resurrection doesn't actually lead us to a Jesus who saves. That's right. That's that's exactly right. So biased, I mean, we are accustomed to using bias as something then to either investigate more thoroughly or dismiss because we can't. But in this case, it's what we've got. And it is a, it is a source of faith. I mean, for, it comes out of faith. It speaks faithfully and it tries to help us see and be grasped by that faith. And one of the things I love about Luke, Luke is my gospel for uh, most of my teaching, although really they're all fascinating. They really (laughs) really are. But Luke is so willing to show people who have been told things, maybe even have experienced things, and are still in a position of pondering what they mean. So that Mary, with all her, the gifts of knowledge that have been given to her from Gabriel, for goodness sakes, uh, and later from Simeon, still has to wonder. And the same thing happens to Peter later on. So I think it puts us in good company, that faith and pondering are not 
inhospitable. I wonder one of the what's really powerful about Easter is that we get a meeting of the limits of our knowledge and the fullness of our hope. Is that we have these biased sources. There's a lot that we may not understand, we may not know, but what we can be convinced of is that God's promises are fulfilled through the resurrection of Jesus, and we can experience that resurrection life today and in the future. I think that's true and probably works better for those of us who are in communities or whatever. And there are many kinds of communities now where there's an experience of the risen Lord, and we're helped to name it that way. So whether it's the sacramental presence of Jesus that uh, we experience in communion or baptism, whether it's some other way in which a gathered community of the faithful have suddenly evinced us something beyond what we think is just made up. And I hope that many people have had those experiences. Uh, An enormous gift, a vision, a something, um, even just a moment of profound conviction that comes sitting in the pew or singing a hymn. It's those experiences where we know the Spirit's activity among us that help us read these also as oh, that's why, and that's for what. So I think it's experience as well as, yes, limits of knowledge, profound hope, our experience, and I want to say a witness of 2,000 years. That's got to be worth something in all this. Somehow it it seems appropriate to end our conversation by saying Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Hallelujah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sarah, and thank you. Our listeners, for joining us on Bible Q&A, you can find more at enterthebible.org. Join us again.